Hello everyone, just Dan here once again to give you another heads up that this week's discussion, as with last week's, might get a little sweary. You have been warned. Now the podcast starts. Hello everyone, if this is your first time listening to this show, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. This show talks about horror, horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes things from our lives which we'd just like to talk about just because that's who we are. This week we're giving you the second of a two-part discussion around witchcraft and paganism, this week focusing on the paganism aspect. And we're going to be referring to a number of specific films, um, including, in spoilerific fashion, Midsommar from 2019 and The Wicker Man from 1973. We have a number of hosts who vary week to week, and I will therefore introduce myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan. I'm in Greater Manchester. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by... uh, Stella Gaynor, also in Manchester. And the person who is the expert in this particular subject area? <laughs> Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. Excellent. Thank you very much, folks. How are you both? I'm good. All right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the world is nothing, okay. <laughs> yeah, nothing has happened in the last seven days. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I can <laughs> sum up <laughs> that question with. Nothing at all, for good or real. No, um, something must have happened. No. No. <laughs> oh, no. dear. I really tried to think of something then, but... Uh, well, in that case, so I don't uh, think sitting on the sofa and watching True Blood all day on Sunday counts, does it? it oh. I think it does. Do you think it does? Yeah. I was worried then. <laughs> I'd that... love a day where I could watch True Blood all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at you both. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I was worried then that the news section was going to be a bit thin, but, you know, we, we seem to have conquered it. Fantastic. Um, that's not true, Stella. I think you've got a little bit of news to share, even if it's from kind of the world of horror, uh, rather than your immediate world. <laughs> rather than things, how dull my Sundays are. Uh, yeah, so um, last week I was talking about uh, Fright Fest and today on whatever day date this is, what date even is this? It's the 28th. So today, on Tuesday the 28th, they've um, Fright Fest have announced their full lineup of films, so if you're interested in taking part in Fright Fest this year in its online um, formation, They've announced all their films. There's some crackers on there. And what they've also announced as well is, which is great, um, there's no ticket restrictions to the film. So usually, you know, you can only get tickets for as many as you can get in the screening room. But this year, because it's online, as many of us can tune in and watch as many of the films as we like. So go online, have a look at the list of films because it's huge and it looks amazing. I can't wait to start picking my movies this year. Wow, that's brilliant. Well, I included a link to the website last week and I'll do the same again this week. 
that's fantastic oh. news. How about you, Kirsty? Cool. Um, uh, no sort of new, new news. Um, I um, uh, I'm getting quite excited though for Love uh, Lovecraft Country, which is uh, a television series which was announced. Um, I think kind of well, earlier this year um, on HBO, um, but it's going to be premiered um, on HBO in the States on the 16th of August, so only a couple of weeks. Um, so hopefully not too far behind um, for UK viewers. Um, but it is um, produced by, uh, executive produced by um, JJ Abrams um, and Jordan Peele amongst others. Um, and it's, uh, it's you know, going to be a big budget horror um, series for HBO, which is... Have they done any other horror Stella recently? HBO, um, they've kind of left it alone, yeah, really, I think, because so, yeah. they went for Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, and then everything was focused on that because HBO, while they sort of, uh, sort of position themselves at the sort of top of the cultural heap of 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 drama, TV drama, they've only ever really got one or two on the go at any one time. Yeah. The rest of the stuff is things they already have licenses to, like the films that they have or the yeah. documentaries that they've made, um, or you know, occasional boxing matches, stuff like that. So yeah, they only seem to have sort of one big drama thing going at any any one time. So they yeah, kind of yeah. left the horror alone. So this this is gonna be interesting yeah. to see what they do. And this is this Definitely. is what what um, they they say the show's about so it uh, it says Lovecraft Country follows Atticus Black as he joins up with his friend uh, Letitia and his uncle George to embark uh, on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father uh, this begins as uh, a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from a Lovecraft paper bu- paperback so it sounds really, really southern gothic, which is yeah. one of the strains that I love. Yes, um, so definitely look- my box yes. of frogs. <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking forward to that, I have to say. So. Yeah, that's lovely stuff. Yeah. Uh, just a moment, guys, my phone's bloody ringing. <gasps> Doing this again. <laughs> Terrible. God's sake. I well, you know, as I explained last week, I can't put it on silent. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, Your phone's mad. Yeah, it's very <laughs> weird. Um, oh, and just in case this happens, I might have to interrupt the discussions to go and answer the door for some medicines again because we just okay. found out. Okay. This is one of the things that has just fucked me off over the last morning. Um, <laughs> I, I came to put all my mum's um, new medicines into her medication trays this morning and found out that. They didn't actually deliver all the medicines that I ordered last week. Oh, great. So there's only um, ah. a certain number of them in the bag. So I've had to contact well, the pharmacy crap. again. And, um, and, and, and basically, she's, she's completely run out of warfarin now. Um, so, right. Well, that's so, quite an essential one. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I'm really hoping that, you know, that somebody from the pharmacy will turn up soon so that she can have today's mm. dose. Um, so... Th- yeah, and uh, and if they do, that obviously means that I'm going to have to uh, run yeah. away for a minute again. So, um, oh, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, well, but, but I'll, I'll give them until... <sighs> I just hope they'll... Co- well, I'll hope they'll come during the recording, because if they come any later than that, it's probably too late for in the day for her to have the dose anyway. But um, anyway, no, right. so mm. just to give both a heads up about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, sorry, have we um, finished talking about Lovecraft Country? <laughs> yes. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> um, um, okay. So, 
Uh, yeah, I'll have to say, um, Southern Gothic isn't something that I've got a massive amount of experience in, but, um, you know, I do love a bit of Lovecraft. Um, Kirsty, you introduced me to the case yes. of Charles Dexter Ward, which <laughs> is the book with the single greatest PS in literary history. Um, um, that, that's what I would recommend it on the basis of. Come on, that's pretty strong. All right. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting. So HBO stuff usually goes to Now TV in the UK, is that right? Um, or, or Sky Atlantic, so yeah. and so and so therefore Now TV, because um, Now TV is Sky, isn't it? Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, got them. Yeah, so it should it should appear not too long after um, American broadcast, one would hope. Okay, yeah. great. And... Um, I am a, a fan of Jordan Peele stuff and of Westworld, which is HBO and J.J. Mm. Abrams. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, they, they've got some good form. Although I have to hold my hands up and say I'm one of the only four people in the world who's never seen Game of Thrones at all. Okay. Um, I've only watched one episode. Right. Okay. And that was to justify buying um, a Urban Decay makeup palette that was Game of Thrones themed. Right. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, so I watched I, one and then then I can buy the pretty things. Yeah, I've watched all of it, so um, I will attempt to not have any spoilers when I talk about it later right. in this episode. Oh, no, it's all right. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I'll forget. It, uh, it's fine. I think at this point, um, you know, I might watch one season of it, but it, it's a lot to catch up on. Um, it is. Having mm. been out the loop for so long. People have been um, offering to lend me DVDs of it since about 2013. And then just didn't. So, um, oh. so I've, uh, you know, that's just rude, isn't it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's kindness followed by um, indifference. So I suppose you, yeah. you, you have those two together, and maybe it's rude. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, no, I mean, in a way, you know, think of the, the the time that I've saved by not watching it. So, well, that's true. That is a lot of time that you've it saved by not watching yeah. Game of Thrones. Um, if you do want to watch it though, without relying on your useless mates, then it is on Now TV. It is usually just sat there all of it on Now TV. So, in there, but in the entertainment um, subscription, the box sets, but it's usually sat there, right. which is where I watched the first episode and went. Right, good. Yeah, there's a lot of breasts in there, and now I can buy that makeup palette that cost nearly fifty quid. Yeah, wow. Used it, used it twice. Oh gee. Um, <laughs> oh, but it's so pretty though. You open it up, and it's got the the throne on it, and all the things are named of by all the palettes and colours are named of things that are relevant to the TV show that I didn't know what they were, but I still went ooh. Right. <laughs> oh, nice. Good merchandise. Okay. By the yeah. way, Kirsty, I wasn't surprised that you'd watched every episode because I've seen your Facebook profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that the actual Sorry, throne that you're sitting on? Uh, I don't know if it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know. I think it's it's just a replica, I believe. But you know, on your Facebook picture, I'm going yeah. to look now. Yeah, <laughs> it's me sat on the Iron Throne, which I only sat on because my daughter wanted to sit on it, and she's uh, nine now. She was eight when when we went to that particular con, and she's not seen any Game of Thrones, but she wanted to sit on the Iron oh. Throne. <laughs> right. So you are. Yeah. Well, it's a so. nice looking throne. You know, I wouldn't begrudge mm. anyone who wants to sit on that. No. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so so my yes. bit of news yeah. then is in, anyway. is in two parts. Uh, yes. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um, uh, yeah, so, well, firstly, I've got some horror-adjacent news, which is 
very adjacent, but given the topic of this week's episode of the show, I thought it'd be appropriate to mention it. There's a book coming out, or two two part um, pair of books coming out this week about the 1980s TV series Robin of Sherwood, which uh-huh. I would always mm. put into that category yeah, yeah. of TV that we yeah. discussed. Uh, you know, when we're talking about TV and how a lot of time horror was disguised on British yeah. TV. Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's Robin Hood, uh, Robin of Sherwood. You know, uh, if you haven't seen it, but you know anything about Robin Hood, you probably think, yeah, you know, uh, outlaws, robbing the rich to give to the poor. You know, that, yeah, that, that doesn't sound anything like horror, but the actual TV series, when you look at it, it's got paganism, it's got Satanism, mm-hmm. it's got witches. Yeah. It's got Yay. some kind of magic, you know, and and it's actually got a really interesting attitude to, um, to kind of the beliefs that were prevalent at that time in history, and yeah. which ones seem yeah. to be real. I mean, for instance, uh, by the you know, this is a show that I love, and I've seen every episode. So uh, it was a friend of the podcast, another horror podcast called A Very British Horror, who tweeted out that this book was coming out. It's actually a reissue. It's called The Hooded Man, and it's published by Milk Publishing. Um, they're one of the small publishing houses that have, uh, you know, like a lot of businesses, suffered over the last few months, and mm. therefore they're re-releasing a few of their old titles. Um, and this pair of books was, I think, published in 2013 originally. Um, but as well as... Um, you know, a, a detailed analysis of the production of the show. Apparently, there's a lot of detail on the history and the folklore behind it. So I think that that will be a really fascinating read. Um, and I think it's a really interesting show in the sense that, um, well, it kind of portrays... You've got lots of different religions in the kind of medieval mixing pot that it presents. But the only one that yeah. seems not to be based on some kind of truth is Christianity, um, you know, because the the the, the pagan ca- characters in it who are Robin Hood and his people, um, you know, uh, they they have kind of literally depicted uh, visions that foretell the future and things. You've also got Satanists in it who seem to worship an actual Satan figure. Um, there's there's an episode where there are Jewish characters and supernatural events happen because of uh, seem to be conducted by Jewish artifacts. Um, whereas the church, the Christian church, is just presented as like a money grabbing um, organization that runs <laughs> Sorry, the country. I'm laughing, that's, you know. Well, no, no, uh, <laughs> it's it kind is. of in, in, in opposition yeah, to what we were talking about last week. Well, no, it, it fits in entirely, <laughs> and also the fact that um, I mean, well, it, uh, and to be fair, if you think I might be reading stuff into this and, and you haven't seen the show. I think maybe the second scene of the first episode of the show is the Abbot Hugo walking in um, and, and his line is, By Christ, Robert, I will not lose my fish pond! <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he, you know, he's so... He's basically, he's hugely concerned that... the. Um, that the uh, the Norman government wants to sell off some of the church's land um, in order to raise money for wars, um, 
and and so the, so his main concern is, but I've got a fish pond. The fish pond's going to go. Priorities, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's supposed to be like a spiritual leader, whereas you know mm-hmm. all, all the kind of alternative religions in it are presented as much more sincere, and you actually get evidence that that their beliefs are justified. Um, also, it connects to what we were talking about last week because, um, you know, there is the, the, one of the pagan um, deities that you see in it is Hearn the Hunter, who appears mm. as this yeah. horned um, yeah. character. And yeah. the TV series was strongly criticised because the heroes of the series were worshipping Hearn, and therefore Mary Whitehouse said... But these people are worshipping <laughs> Satan. He's the horned figure of Satan. How can you show this to children? It's corruption and, and all this stuff. And that, and, yes. Mm, and there's yeah. the problem. So. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, but no, so yeah. I, I wanted to mention that and I'll put a link to the Milk Publishing website. I think it's £15 for each of the two books. Um, and they're available. Bargain. Uh, but the TV show is available anywhere. It's the, the, the actual show itself. Yes, it's on DVD. It was released on DVD okay. by Network 15 or so years ago, which is how I saw it. And I think it might be on YouTube. I think okay. somebody might have uploaded it all to YouTube. Um, and I think that in this case, um, that might be justified because it never gets repeated on television, which I think yeah. it should do. You'd think it'd be on ITV3 all the time, you know, um, yeah. mm. like certain things are, because it's such a good show. Um, uh, but it's it's kind of a little bit forgotten about in a strange way. So I'll put links to those on the on the uh, website as well. And Great. the mention of network DVD brings me to my big news item of the week, which is they've just announced network um, have announced in the last few days that early next month they'll be releasing a Blu-ray special edition of the 1989 film of The Woman in Black, which has been oh. unavailable for ever basically it's it's i mean i used to have it on dvd but it was an import i, I don't think it's ever yeah. been properly released on dvd in this country um it's had all no. kinds of rights issues that have kept it away from release those seem to have been resolved and they're doing a lovely blu-ray release of it it comes out on october the, uh, sorry august the 10th and it's exclusively available from the network website, uh, which, I, again, I'll post the link to in the show notes. Um, and I'm definitely buying it because <laughs> I think it's possibly the most frightening film ever, ever made. The only reason I didn't include it in our list of our most frightening movies oh, yeah. is because I am aware that when I first saw it and was first terrified by it, I was only nine. And... I watch it again, I've seen it loads of times, and I always find it incredibly frightening, but I do wonder if some of that is because I can remember how it made me feel at the time, and it kind of resurrects Definitely. that. Um, I think maybe uh, if you saw it for, your, for the first time as an adult, you wouldn't be so impressed, but maybe you yeah. would. I do think it's an incredible <clears throat> piece of work. And again, it has that thing uh, of horror in disguise. Um, you know, it's quite subtle mm-hmm. because... Um, they just didn't do horror on TV in in Britain at the time very often. And if you watched the first half, The Woman in Black, or just tuned in, not knowing what it was and just switched over and saw it, you'd think it was an episode of Miss Marple or Poirot or something. (laughs) 
and it's <laughs> actually made by the the people who made Inspector Morse. Um, it's only if you actually watch the whole thing from beginning to end that the kind of dread builds up. And yeah. um, I do think some of the later scenes in that movie are some of the most frightening things I've ever seen. So I'm definitely buying it, even though cool. I don't have a Blu-ray player. <laughs> Um, I think maybe this is I'll make a confession here this podcast frequently makes me feel like I haven't seen enough and I I don't know enough even though I I love the horror genre and I I, I, I consider myself a fairly well informed fan I think you guys are much more informed Um, and I I, I just I'm worried every week by the amount of things I've not seen and the fact is I've never bought a DVD player um, you know, <laughs> how, how how long have Blu-rays been around now? About thirteen years, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah something something like that. I think what you said though about feeling that you don't, that you've not seen enough. I always feel like that as well. Yeah, me and too. So whenever, because everybody watches their own stuff, yeah. and you know, there's so much content out there, and yeah. you know, it's it's my job to watch television, and I still don't see nearly enough is what I need to do or when I go to academic horror based conferences and you're in a room full of horror academics and I always feel like god I feel like I've watched two films and half an episode of The Walking Dead and that's it and I think that's that's everybody gets that and I guess it's imposter syndrome a little bit because if you know if if you're with somebody who's into something as much as as you are that you've always you always feel a little bit I don't know yeah a little bit insecure and I, I definitely get it and you know it's I've got academic colleagues who are professors now and, and they still have it, so that's it's okay. I suppose it must be even <laughs> yeah. worse if you feel like it's your job to have seen this stuff and, and you haven't. Um, Definitely. You know, I, I'm just I'm in a, I'm in a group chat from... with some friends. I'm in a group chat with some academic friends and they all do horror film as a thing. I do horror TV as, as my research area and they're always gabbling on about films and I'm just sat watching the chat going, I've got nothing to add to this <laughs> at all. Even though I'm supposed to be, you know, a horror academic, I'm just in a, I'm still in a different field to them, even though it's, you know, the genre is the same. I'm just a different research area altogether. So yeah, yeah. they, they give me lots of, um, sort of sound bites to make it appear like I know what I'm talking about right. <laughs> in lots of cases. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, well, you're doing what you can to keep abreast of the conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I suppose you have chosen a both fortuitous and unfortunate time to, to get into your field. Yeah, if, if um, there hadn't mm. been this explosion in horror TV that we've discussed recently, there wouldn't be the, the academic um, field that you can go in, really. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's yeah. so much of it that you are basically outnumbered, aren't you? You know. Yeah, um, definitely. Every week, a whole yeah. new season of something comes out. Well, um, that's it, and you know, Netflix are, you know, particularly bad for releasing stuff constantly, which we've talked about before is potentially going to be their downfall. But you know, as and as, as more countries around the world get on board with horror serialization as well, um, you know, it's not just because when when I started the research my phd sort of three years before i even started writing it there was there's only a handful of shows to choose from and most of those are from the states and now you know there's the korean you know the kingdom and yeah some really good stuff coming out of australia at the moment as well so yeah it's, it's quite difficult to keep up yeah. for sure oh well i mean happy oh, well. times of abundance <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> um it could be worse couldn't it 
this could be yeah they could be now on 1996 <laughs> and i could be at the cinema considering going to watch white squall because it's the nearest <laughs> thing that looks like it might be vaguely frightening um so well in that, uh, right. that note those are our news items for the week and i think that the robin of sherwood thing kind of teed us up on paganism to some extent so shall we dive into our main topic we can do. do. <laughs> last week, okay. in the episode, yeah. last week we discussed, uh, we had a specific focus on witchcraft and depictions of witchcraft in cinema. We talked particularly about the witch um, in mm-hmm. great detail and um, the witch being Robert Eggers' film from 2015. And I think, Kirsty, um, that might be a good point to dive back in. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking a little bit more about, um, you know, we obviously discussed the ending of that film and how um, you both thought that it was the, you know, the kind of right ending for Thomas Inn. That was her best option, is to go and join this coven and, and follow uh, Black Philip into living deliciously. Um, and <laughs> actually thinking about it, I mean, we were sort of joking at the time about, you know, uh, having go, you know, goat curry. Um, <laughs> that actually, I, the kind of more I thought about it, the more I thought that actually the kind of an alternative ending where Thomas in, you know, essentially kind of does in Black Philip um, and then returns to the settlement only, although then again we were joking that she'd, she'd get burnt for, you know, being a witch, but that probably is true in that she, if she yeah. kind of enters the village covered, you know, covered in blood um, and having lost all of her family, even though she would be the heroine and she defeated this great evil, that actually her treatment um, in that kind of context would have been, you know, one of not at all, you know, kind of sympathy, but one of persecution mm-hmm. and ultimately death. Yeah. And then actually that's a more scary ending, I f- feel. Well, think, that's the you know, Night of the Living Dead ending, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. So, yeah, yeah so I was just kind of thinking, well, actually, that, for me, would have been not just a better ending for Thomason in terms of she's not falling into that kind of trope of, um, okay, you know, we'll join the witches, um, but just sort of speaking a little bit more to the kind of genuine horror of that era, which was, you know, yeah. the kind of witch purge and the, you know, horrendous, yeah. you know, suffering that, that, you know, lots of people experienced, so. Women being murdered yeah. for being women. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of, I was just uh, just sat with that a little bit more over the last few days and just thought, yeah, that would have been a sort of more powerful ending, I think, for me, anyway. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that occurred to me is that we didn't t- discuss at all, which is kind of an obvious thing to discuss, um, and I think probably we didn't discuss it because it doesn't actually turn up in the in the witch is the use of the pentacle we've talked we talked last week about the symbols that have you know come from paganism come from witchcraft and then got reappropriated by you know kind of christians um and yeah. sort of used against pagans and of course the pentacle is one that is ubiquitous across um supernatural horror or any horror mm-hmm. that um uses witchcraft um and it is a symbol that that is used in in paganism and witchcraft, and it's really, really it has a really specific meaning. It kind of it 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 has five. It's a five pointed star, and the four of those points refer to the four you know kind of um, elements. And the fifth element is is considered the, the, the spirit, which is why kind of five points are important. Um, but that as a symbol has you know been used as a symbol of Satanism. Um, or of devil worship, um, and what's interesting that e- even Satanists themselves are used have used that symbol because it w- was applied, you know, kind of um, by the church 
re, you know, re, redefined by the church. But what's interesting is that the Satanist use of it, they differentiate their use of it um, from the pagan uh, use because of the the direction of the top star. So in a pagan, the pagan use, the top, the star, so the top point, it point, points upwards, but with Satanism, it points downwards. So, oh, okay. so you can tell the difference. So. Can I make a confession, yes, Kirsty? I've I've got one tattooed on my right leg. Have you? Wow. <laughs> yeah. well, we've oh got, wow! This I'll, is I'll where Jerry Goldsmith's Deathly Choir kind of crashes. Well, yes, in. I I also well, I also have one, but <laughs> not on my right leg. Well, for different yeah. reasons. Mine is from when um, I'm a big big fan of the old uh, Swedish death metal, yeah. and two God no God three years ago now I. I had the pleasure of visiting Gothenburg, Ooh. where lots of my favourite um, Swedish death yeah. metal bands are from, and I felt that I should get a uh, pentacle tattooed on myself whilst in Gothenburg, okay. so I did. So did. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's interesting, isn't it, how that, that because that symbol becomes really potent in a sort of a, yeah. as a sort of uh, a symbol which seems to be inherently anti-Christian. Mm. Um, that it gets co-opted into not only kind of horror iconography but also you know kind of rock iconography as well as yeah, being, music. Yeah, music yes that's kind of mm. you know it's 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 an in- interesting the way that that symbol has been kind of reinterpreted and used in different ways yeah can i ask a question and people's reaction to the tattoo yeah oh, sorry, no, go, on, no. go on stella well, people's reactions to the tattoo were either people, friends of mine who like metal too, and all went, "Yeah, that's cool," or yeah. other people who don't and just sort of rolled their eyes. <laughs> um, can I ask what feels like a bit of a silly question? But just is there any? Uh, thank you. Is there any relationship between the the pagan five pointed star and the the Jewish one? Um, um, uh, and I mean, I don't have a clear picture in my head. Maybe they're actually not that similar. Um, I just um, know that they're both five-pointed stars, aren't they? Well, uh, the Jewish star's six-pointed, isn't it? Star oh, is six, it? All oh, right. So yeah. yeah, so it yeah, was yeah. a silly question. <laughs> so they did. Okay. Yeah. So um, right. Okay. In yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure about the kind of the you know the kind of origins of that as a symbol, but um, you know this kind of yeah kind of traditions that are probably mm. quite closely aligned um, or histories that are quite closely linked. I think with some of that symbolic or you know kind of symbolism. Um, in particular, um, but I'm not an expert in it, so I don't want to sort of speculate about what I think. Well, no, don't worry. Co- it, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just in my head they were the same. Yeah. But I'm clearly but completely not. wrong about that. <laughs> and now yeah. I realise that I'm completely wrong because I can see the six-pointed star in my yeah. mind's eye now. Yes. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the other thing I wanted to just to sort of differentiate this discussion from the one we were having last week is to try and, if I can, make a little bit of a diff distinction between um paganism and witchcraft um or what is a pagan and what is a witch um but again it's it's not it's not straightforward um so <clears throat> the term pagan is is again like many of the kind of you know words connecting to you know things we've talked about have been quite difficult to d- define and have different meanings to different people um in different contexts so the one i'm going to use actually comes from um somebody who identifies as both a pagan and a witch and that is uh jason menke um of uh pathos pagan which is a kind of uh, it's a pagan blog um and he decides he defines um paganism as a modern religious or, sp- or in in a sorry modern um, religious or spiritual context as being 
kind of four things. So the first is uh, nature-based. So that is a practice and a kind of spirituality which works with and honours the natural cycles and rhythms of the earth, um, has you know an emphasis on kind of environmentalist ideology, um, uh, a practice which is um, polytheistic, so many gods, um, and some practitioners, um, you know, think about those gods as being actual, you know, um, actual deities, different deities, and other people confirm, sort of tend to think of them as being what we call aspect deities, reflections of the same energy. Um, and either is fine. Um, <laughs> thirdly, um, he talks about the idea of the feminine principle, which is essentially the idea that um, it's not that it is you know kind of uh matriarchal or feminist but it's there's that sort of exception also the um acceptance that uh you know kind of natural energies are both male and female um and that you know sometimes the kind of creative energies we tend to um put emphasis on them coming from feminine energies um mm -hmm. so there's a lot of you know kind of recognition of the you know feminine energies and the veneration of the female divine um think about the you know ideas about the, like the great mother or mother earth and mother nature yeah. gaia whatever um yeah and then finally he defines it as being a kind of western tradition in that we call it paganism um so you know there are lots of diff different religions across the world which you know kind of arguably conform to this um but they tend to have their own names so like for example um you know kind of hinduism or aspects of hinduism can be seen as being pagan because it's polytheistic and you know mm -hmm. um all that kind of stuff but um that you know has a specific label so when we're talking about paganism generally we tend to be thinking about kind of western traditions um and then there's the idea of kind of neo-pagans. So that's the kind of movements that have happened to sort of re-establish, um, uh, you know, kind of pagan traditions from the past it, that sort of started in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so neo-paganisms. And Wicca is a kind of neo-pagan movement. Mm -hmm. um, so the key thing is, is that not all pagans are witches. There are lots of different types of pagans. So druids, um, heathens, occultists, goddess-centred practitioners, and Wiccans. And again, not all Wiccans, or not all witches identify as, uh, identify as Wiccans. Um, and not, yeah, so it's... Ultimately, it's complicated, and paganism mm -hmm. is this collection of belief structures, um, and it's not centralised, which is why it's difficult to kind of sometimes carve these distinctions because people often label themselves in one way, and then their practices mm -hmm. are actually quite eclectic. Um, and also, we don't have any big institutions that speak for pagans generally. Mm -hmm. um, and the mythology and the rituals are often really specific in terms of region. Um, so I'm right. from Shropshire um, and there's a whole kind of collection of mythology and practice and kind of rituals and celebrations that are actually really specific to Shropshire. Um, Shropshire is not alone in that. Um, I mean, in fact, it's probably probably most in, in, in terms of England anyway, most vibrantly demonstrated in Cornwall and Devon. Um, mm -hmm as being sort of slightly more Celtic um, counties, but also, you know, you can go to Wales and, you know, and Ireland and, and Scotland and, yeah. you know, and find quite, um, again, different um, uh, traditions in those places too. So <laughs> that's, that's the division that I'm going to try and make. So it's, you know, it's not as, 
you know, feminine in terms of we're not talking about the representation of women specifically. We're not talking yeah. about the way that um, it's a label that has been applied often erroneously to others. We're talking about kind of people and cultures and traditions that exist um, and are sometimes represented on film um, and in horror often not represented particularly kindly which leads us on then to our first film uh, Midsummer, which um, listeners, listeners of this podcast will know that I have been working myself up <laughs> to watch and um, partly that's because you know I knew that I was going to find it problematic as a as a pagan um uh-huh. and partly it's because I, I knew that it, it had quite a lot of abjection in it um that I felt was probably going to be a bit challenging for me um but it uh, what I found though in watching it is uh, as with lots of things that often when you just build them up in your head <laughs> the reality the, <laughs> the idea of them is far worse than the reality and I'm pleased to report that Midsummer was not anywhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. I did not, <laughs> I did not find myself hiding behind a couch, you know, hiding behind the couch or, or a cushion for its uh, duration. So, yes, well done, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, you know, um, so I mean, should we do a little bit of what we did last week, which is, you know, you you guys talk and then, you know, I can kind okay, of sure. come in with some, yeah. yeah? Um, shall so. I go first? Yeah, go on. Um, uh, happy, for you, happy for you to chip in first, Ella, if you feel like you've got something strongly to say. Um, <laughs> uh, I I like Midsummer. <laughs> That's my review. Move on. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's... it's a, I've seen it twice now. I think... Um, it's kind of a fascinating film, um, and I think it's a, a film that I suppose we. Sh- I mean, I know that I flagged up at the beginning of um, the episode that we're going to go into spoilers here, but th- there is a potential that somebody listening to this just hasn't bothered to watch the film, doesn't really, isn't really interested in watching the film. So we should say that Midsummer is. We should give a summary of its storyline. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, about a, a, a young American woman called Danny, um, played by Florence Pugh, who at the start of the movie is quite spectacularly bereaved. Her parents and her sister... Mm-hmm. Well, her sister um, causes the death of herself and her parents. Um, and at that point, uh, Danny's boyfriend a guy called christian played by um jack rayner who seems to be a bit um a bit rubbish was (laughs) the the film shows us that he was just about to break up with her oh yeah encouragement of his friends he's been a right flake isn't he yeah Yeah. um but unfortunately (laughs) just as more or less exactly as he's about to make that phone call she rings him and says, my family are, have all been killed. Oh, well, you know, she doesn't say that. But, you know, th- that event happens. And I think he he feels that he can't break up with her when she's in such emotional distress. So um, then the film cuts to a few months later, I think. And Christian and his friends are planning to go to Sweden to take part in the Midsummer festi- festivities. Or, or one, I mean, um, Midsummer is a... Uh, a kind of a, a collection of traditions across Sweden, I think, and you know they're, they're going to one particular um, 
event that they're interested in finding out about because one of them, a couple of them are um, anthropology students, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, they are. And Chris, even though it's months later, Christian still hasn't um, found the strength to break up with Danny. So they're still together and, and she finds out about the trip to Sweden and says, can I come along? And he says, yeah, OK, even though he doesn't want her to and neither do any of his friends. Um, except maybe their Swedish friend who quite likes yes. it. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so they go to this, this festival um, and the Swedish friend, whose name is Pelle, um, kind of introduces them to this uh, the festival which takes place at high summer um, uh, in this part of Sweden meaning that there is very little darkness I think they have a couple of hours in the very dead of night when the light dims a bit but apart from that it's it's all daylight um, and they're welcome to the festival as guests um, but, but they find it quite <laughs> strange. And, yes. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I don't feel I need to spoil the ending, I think. No. All you have to say, it's kind of a horror film, therefore I think the, the audience can probably work out where it's going. Um, mm -hmm. But <laughs> at the same time, some people argue that it's not a horror film because it's not frightening. Um, and mm -hmm. I sort of agree with that. I think it's beguiling in a strange way and it's certainly chilling in places um but to me it's mo it's it's emotional effect is mainly it's about this story of really the breakup um between danny and christian and the emotional journey that she goes on from from grief throughout the other side and how that is kind of played out through their involvement in this midsummer festival and um my worry about the film is that even though I like it and it's it's beautifully filmed and the, the music is particularly incredible because you've got a lot of kind of musical um, pageantry that goes on at this festival, the costumes that everyone are wearing. Um, and and I, I love the kind of gently sinister mood that's created simply by everybody being really nice. And you just... <laughs> just yeah, just not used to just that. The British part <laughs> of your brain just goes, this isn't quite right. Um, <laughs> immediately suspicious of someone being nice to me but what, what I worry about the film is that al although it makes sense to me as a kind of emotional journey uh, for, for Danny and, and Christian about their breakup and their relationship um, I worry that everything else will probably kind of fall apart if you think about it too much um, and therefore I haven't really thought about it too much and I hope maybe we, we will now um, mm -hmm. Uh yeah, I think that kind of sums up my feelings about the movie. Uh, Stella? Um, well, uh, okay, so I think for, for me, I do sort of struggle to put it in the horror box, I suppose, um, for various reasons. And I think the, the most horrific part of the film for me was um, the, the loss of Danny's family. Mm. Because that was so awful, and and you know I thought the film got off to such that strong start. I was like, oh god, this is that's really awful, that's really bleak. This is going to be great. Um, and then the rest of it, I think, just as a personal preference, I think I found it a bit slow. So I was really excited to watch it. I didn't go and see it in the cinema because I have no social life and I can't go to the cinema. So I got it on DVD eventually, and 
we had it for a few weeks before we sat down and watched it and I was rubbing my hands with glee about watching it I thought it was really really excited and then I just found myself going oh come on we just end end burn somebody <laughs> for god's sake just end um but yeah I, I, did, I did find that the the killing of her family that the death of her family really really traumatic and that was great um and then the, it was very very tense like you said it did build the tension but I think it built it for a bit too long it could have been half an hour shorter yeah. and I think my absolute number one the thing that I like about it the best is is the light the constant mm. light yeah. because you're so used to horror films being dark and gloomy and moody and you know low budget films saving on money by just not lighting anything um, and I, I've been to Sweden a couple of times I'm lucky enough to have friends and family there and I have been when it's very very light and it is for someone like me who is um a vampire and would prefer to live in the dark the whole time i found the light in sweden oppressive and in lots of the houses in in sweden they don't have they don't have curtains because when there is very little light they want to make the best use of what light there is during the winter months so in the summer they're just like yeah let the light in and i'm like oh for christ's sake so i had to go and buy a roll of tin foil and cover up the cur- the windows of the room i was staying in because i couldn't sleep and wow. i'm sure everybody walking past outside thought i was murdering people in there <laughs> because you know i was trying to cover up for blood spatter but that the light in Sweden is is oppressive at certain times of year so I did enjoy how light the film was and how it was almost there was a lot of glare coming off the screen when you was watching it and I thought I I really did like that but in terms of the story I don't think I was that enamored of it um I couldn't work out for ages and this is because when I watch anything I do just entirely take the story as it comes. I can never figure anything out before it's actually spoon-fed to me. So I wasn't sure who was going to get burnt. Was it going to be her? Was it going to be him? So when it was him, I was like, oh, right. So I am a bit dim and watching stuff. So when it got to the bit at the end, it was burnt, and it was just, I don't know, it wasn't as harrowing as watching somebody being burnt to death. (laughs) should be um, but that might be because i wanted to go to bed <laughs> by that stage i will you know that is the caveat yeah. it, you know i it, if it's, it was past 11 o'clock i was done <laughs> so well, but yeah I, I, it was beautiful i loved the light i found it a bit slow and also um i wasn't sure why maybe you can answer this question kirsty why did they all take hallucinogens oh. what was that about <laughs> well, they, well they, when they get there, yeah, the, as part of the community or just the kids, uh, any of it. It's just like right, we've arrived. We're in a field. Here, have some acid. What? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think in some ways it's just about sort of, you know, kind of again setting up um, the idea that we, you know, they can't trust what they're seeing, um, mm. and sort of slightly set up the idea of sort of destabilised. Exp- you know, kind of emotional, psychological experience for them. Um, yeah. But again, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> well, again, I, I, I think one of the best it, things in the film is the way that that, you know, they take those hallucinogens early on and then that affects the visual style of the rest yeah. of the movie. And right. you yeah. keep getting, you know, like the scene where I think they're at the dining table and the food seems to be moving and... Yes, and all yeah, the yeah, scenes yeah. where Danny looks down and, <laughs> and, and her foot or her hand is merging with the grass yeah. and things like that. Um, yeah. It becomes a big theme 
kind of throughout the movie and therefore kind of contributes to my, my idea that the real story of the movie is the kind of it, it relates to the emotional internal life of, of Danny and the other characters to some extent um, and mm. therefore literally I'm not too sure about it if, if you were to take what happened yeah. literally um. well no I think and I, do you know I, I think that would work better if it was um, like a restricted narrative in that we stay with Danny all the time yeah. um, but because the film doesn't do that it's you know there are several scenes where she's not there that's it seems slightly inconsistent as an approach um sure. but mm-hmm. yeah i think i think just you know it's in the nature of horror isn't it to sort of slightly destabilize us and to do that through a kind of device that we understand the um you know the, the kind of the the emotional or the, the the reality of the protagonist has been destabilized in some way and because danny gets forced to doesn't she she gets forced to yeah she doesn't know. want to take it but i think i'm sure i said this to you dan at the last Grimfest that i i do always find the give giving a character a hallucinogen to to destabilize and be like oh what's real what's real yeah. what's you know what's happening and what's not i just always it always trips you up a bit because i always think that's a bit lazy yeah, yeah. It's a bit cheap. i think um and you know, and then the the representation of the people being under the influence of whatever it is they've been given is it's just it always just doesn't quite work for me. Um, and then it, I mean, I, mean I, I did panel a bottle of wine while I was watching the film, so they might have <laughs> right. referenced it again. But did they mention later on in the film why they all had to be tripping well, at they, the start? They, I don't, no, I don't but know. They, they do talk. There was a bit where. Um, uh, Christian's offered a drink, isn't it? And and the girl, I think the girl says something like, "I will, you know, make you more open to what's, yeah, you know, what's going to." Well, come. that's quite late so, on in the film. Right. It seems yeah. to me that there's yeah. there's a long se- sequence yep. of the movie. There's like an hour or more between the, the scene where they initially take, um, yeah, the, the tea or whatever it is, uh, and the, then that bit. The cocktail. And I don't know if you're supposed to take it that they are continually taking those mm. things throughout the story yeah. because yeah. I mean I, don't, I you know I hold my hands up I don't know much about drugs or whatever and, and most of what I do know are things that uh, friends have told me um, but I, I assume that you know that stuff that they took at the start wore off after a few hours um, yeah, it's not going to last how long are they there for several days, days at least yeah it's not going to last that no. long I mean I don't know what they've got in Sweden, but it's not going to last that long. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. that, yeah. Okay. That's pretty much sums up yeah. what I think. Well, can I just chime in with a couple of additional thoughts I, I've had uh, based on what you've said, Stella? Um, mm. So, um, uh, well, no, actually, I don't think I can. <laughs> That's really weird. <laughs> Things did occur to me, and I thought I must say say them at the end of Stella's bit, but now I can't remember what I was going to say. Um, oh yeah, uh, I said the burning wasn't very scary. Yes, that's right. Now I remember. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, you were talking about you you, you weren't sure where it was going. I, I have a slightly different viewpoint in that I was pretty sure where it was going um, throughout. You know, I, as I say, it comes like uh, it comes over as a fairly predictable plot. But uh, uh, my mind was um, kind of saying, is it really going to go that way or is there going to be some twist? Is it going to be something mm-hmm. else? 
And what I can't quite work out is if the film is more or less effective because I kind of knew where it was going all along. It doesn't really feel like yes. the movie is trying to make you... Um, you know, it's not it's not a suspense film. It's not trying to grip you in mm-hmm. that kind of way. Um, and, and the kind of literal plot points of it kind of mitigate against the idea of, of it being a suspense film because I don't think they necessarily add up. Um, but nevertheless, I, I mean, I do enjoy that. I, en- I kind of enjoyed the lack of suspense in a way. I found it pleasantly sinister. Um, and then at the <laughs> end, I, I think the end is, as you say, it's not kind of ha- really harrowing in a horror way to watch Christian yeah. get burned. I think the most harrowing bit is when the Swedish volunteers who, yeah. who get burned with them and who are conscious at the time, um, you know, yeah. they, they, they seem to be happy and, and, and in a good mood and then the, the flames start to lick <laughs> up their legs and they suddenly realise, oh no, I'm on fire. Oh, no. And that's... This is a bad day. That's <laughs> very disturbing, but that's only a couple of seconds. Yeah. And I think the main mm-hmm. kind of focus of that ending is the, the kind of revelation that Danny goes through and yeah. in a way, it's a happy ending for her because she's found a community and she's let go of Christian. And the very last shot of the film is the, the big close-up of Florence Pugh, uh, her face, which has been in a frown for the last half hour of the film. Oh, no, for all, into... all of the film. <laughs> well, so, I mean, no, that, I think... To be fair, she can pout like no other actress, but in a really, you know, like that that's a kind of her aesthetic. And I've found her totally kind of engaging in the film she's brilliant <laughs> yeah and, and, and she's brilliant in other things that i've seen her yeah yeah but she i is, do she think is. that um she kind of conveys misery and grief and and fear and anguish and all these things so well for the most part but towards the end of the film and i'm not the first person to say this her frowny face does seem to go extreme and, and and then kind of stays the same for most of the last half hour Sorry. until at the end she finally kind of breaks out into a cheesy grin. Um, yeah. and, um, and I know what that's saying and I do think it's kind of refreshing that we have a movie with this predictable narrative in a way that we've complained about. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact that it results in a kind of happy ending is unpredictable mm. and I think it is a legitimate happy ending because you care about Danny you don't really care about Christian or no, about no, no, the although to be honest I did I did care a little bit about Josh but only because he's cheedy from yeah, the good place yeah he's from the good place and he yes. was like oh no let's <laughs> just all agree that he's cheedy it's fine yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. don't burn cheedy we're very happy to see him. Um, so yes. Yeah, so those are those are my thoughts. So, um, so how about you, Kirsty? What's oh, your okay. detailed reaction? <laughs> uh, okay. So gather around, children. Yes. So, um, <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I say the things that I really liked about it. I mean, I'm 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 really a big fan of um, kind of abjection as sort of beauty and the aesthetic of horror. Um, and I was that was one thing that I was really looking forward to in this film was the way it was going to deliver its you know kind of horror in a way that actually is very atypical of horror as you said you know it's there's lots of light and lots of color um mm. lots of flowers um and this big beautiful um, natural setting so i really enjoyed that um i agree with Stella. i mean that the opening is just horrific and mm. and that sets up this you know um i think you know, lots of people 
talked about the film as being in some way kind of grief porn in the same way that the Babadook yeah. is because it's you know we start off with a horrendous loss um yeah so I thought that was a really in kind of engaging kind of way to start the film. Um, I agree with you, Dan, in terms of I knew where the film was going because, you know, again, it's sort of, it, though we're going to talk about The Wicker Man later, you know, it, it, lots of people have drawn comparisons between it and The Wicker Man in terms yeah. of its, you know, its arc. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, but from, you know, kind of slightly more analytical kind of point of view, um, uh, you know, again, we've got this idea that it's this, this pagan, you know, kind of community um, that Danny and Christian and the others join for this celebration. Um, it's Swedish. So they are Swedish. So that, that kind of, you know, the nationality and the ruralness of them helps encode them as being other exotic and so therefore threatening, mm. particularly because they're so welcoming to be with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and and again, we've got like the witch. We've got another film that has our female join with that kind of aberrant, abject community at the end. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. to find uh, you know to find the the best outcome for themselves. And actually, with Danny, I think that's probably true. I'm <laughs> Well, it's just so terrible. Um, the, uh, and as a pagan, there are whilst obviously there are some horrible things that happen, there are and some aspects of that community that actually seem really positive. Although I think that my reading of them is not necessarily what Ari Aster, who wrote and directed the film, necessarily wants me to think about that. He is, you know, kind of like those male characters, uh, an American um, outsider. You know, so he's not writing yeah. it from a position of somebody who who, you know, kind of comes from that community um, or even comes from that country. So, again, it's been very much used as a way of kind of distancing us as a spectator and our group of characters that we're following from that, you know, those other group of people. Um, um, and again, as I've, my next note I've got is um, it's masculine self-legitimising intrusion, which is, you know, quite judgmental. <laughs> way of putting it right. in the that they kind of they, they you know they go on the with the invitation of um uh pella um to go to join this you know this festival but they're going as you know primarily christian and josh as anthropology students mm. who want to you know it's something interesting exciting and again exotic and other that they exotic, want to use yeah to write their you know their you know kind of theses or whatever um so that that gives us a way into um the the kind of pagan community um but it's not you know they're not kind of going to join the community as in to just kind of be open to the experience and you know and kind of as a way of spiritually aligning themselves it's you know they're already going with the mindset of being analytical observers rather than yeah. and danny's along for the ride um so when they get there, obviously they're presented with this rural idyll, which, you know, again, is not dissimilar to lots of other films that pre present paganism in this way. But it's that mm -hmm. utopia that, you know, on the face of it, you know, particularly when, whenever it's framed in horror, you think, OK, uh, it's, you know, it's not, never going to be as good as it first appears. In fact, it's going mm -hmm. to be the absolute antithesis of that. Um so yeah, so we kind of got then I've kind of got a set, a set of notes that are really about kind of what the way in which the film uses kind of older structures and older things. Um, so um, I've not seen got to say I've not seen um, Hereditary, so I can't comment on this. But um, okay. I, underst I understand that that Ariasta use, has used his runes in was reused runes in 
that film as well. Is that right? What, there, is a, it seems... there is a cult aspect. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So one of the so obviously he's he uses um, in Midsummer um, runic um, symbols as a way of again differentiate kind of establishing the kind of cultural legitimacy of wherever they are and the kind of you know her- traditional heritage of Sweden. Um, but also he used but he uses specific runes in really you know in really meaningful ways. And if you look up the runes that are on different buildings and that they're on different signs, they they have meaning. Um, that is actually yeah. relevant. So one of the first ones that we see is actually the Othala rune, which which means um, heritage and inheritance and lineage, which I think kind of becomes important to the idea that, you know, kind of Pella is bringing these people in to do, you know, to kind of continue to propagate the, the existence of this community. Um, but that's it, you know, the, the actual community itself is fairly traditional in terms of its gender roles. Right. Yeah, women are in the kitchen, yeah. and the kind of women gather together, and the men are seen as sort of scholars and guardians and the elders. Um, and the next note I've got is pagans. They're always dancing in circles around things. What's that about? <laughs> they never sat no, down, they are never they? Sat down. <laughs> they? You know, they can't. They're not. They're not sort of freeform dancing, and you know, they're not. You know, doing ballroom or Latin or hip hop. It's just circles around yeah. things. Um, as if that's hold your hands exactly or if they yeah sometimes if they're not in circles around things that they are just spinning um so um (laughs) but again i suppose that you know in some ways we can kind of think about that that it 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 does have some relevance or some kind of truth in pagan tradition because of the idea of the the, you know the cycles and wheel of the year etc um do you think it's a bit of laziness though that's just become like a sort of aesthetic yeah, shorthand yeah, for no, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, this, oh, this type of community and yeah flower yeah. crowns dancing in a circle around something waving phallic. your arms at the sky yeah something phallic <laughs> definitely um so yeah so um, and this is the thing I, I i i found a bit strange but i'm 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 aware that maybe i don't know the kind of swedish traditions in the same way so danny ultimately becomes the may queen who is kind of sort of symbolically mm-hmm. quite important to the whole um celebrations but this is midsummer so in, at least in britain the may queen is not a character or is not a kind of you know a symbol that is important to mid the midsummer celebration yeah. instead mm-hmm. she's important to the beltane celebration which is your may day yeah. celebration um and one of the things i was looking into this is why is he using the may queen for for midsummer because that doesn't seem to be authentic to me but Apparently that there's something with because of the way that in Sweden the seasons are marked differently because of you know it being more northern that okay. a lot of the kind of greenery that we use uh, in Britain to sort of celebrate or you know uh, around May Day isn't available till later doesn't come into bloom until later. Um, that's right. not entirely convincing for me, but that's that's one of the things I could find. Um, but it's, in yeah, the month of May is still in the same time though, isn't it? No, well, midsummer's June. Right. Okay. So. So yeah. So. So wouldn't she be the June queen? <laughs> sure. She she ought to be really. She shouldn't be the May queen, but um, yeah. So that's something that, I, that seems a little bit ropey to me. Um, in in this country, the kind of pagan celebrations are often you know midsummer is a feast day, and it's a day that is often celebrated with bonfires. Um, it is the kind of um, the sort of cardinal opposite of the you know midwinter Yule festival um, which yeah. is also a feast feast day and a day with you know kind of you know the, the importance of kind of bonfires and 
that kind of stuff. Um, so the at least the end we have you know the, the film does have lots of feasting in it. The pies. Let's all remember the pies. Um, <laughs> and then obviously the kind of big bonfire at the end. Um, so you know that that kind of at least is is consistent with tradition. Um, yeah. So in terms of horror <laughs> and the representation of women and femaleness in this film i've got a bit of a, again the same problem that i had with um with the witch which is the there's yeah. a sequence in it um where we have lots of naked women and there you know mm -hmm. variety of naked women but you know some of them are slightly older and so again we've got that idea of um you know kind of older less perfect female nudeness i've just remembered that sequence i was reading yeah. the notes going what yeah. was that and now it's all just come screaming back yeah oh, so again it's that it. <laughs> <laughs> but again it's i think it's the way in which the the, the horror uses almost an inverse male gaze as a way yeah. of you know kind of heightening the horror um mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so it's just you know in that sequence is is you know arguably although it's not about horror in a traditional sense it's Particularly, I feel like if you're a male heterosexual viewer, that would be a kind of, you know, kind of particularly um, horrific sequence, um, I think, maybe. I'll strike a note of slight <laughs> disagreement. I yeah. think that it's an uncomfortable <laughs> sequence. Yeah. The yeah. main discomfort of it is from the point of view of Christian. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, because... Yeah. Uh, and you know you, you you do identify to some extent with that as a male heterosexual viewer, but at the same time he's not presented by the movie as a particularly admirable character. No, no. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so to some extent you think if he is uncomfortable, um, good, he's asked for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, and then the film proceeds to do the kind of humiliation sequence where he runs out of the room and he's naked and he tries to find yeah. somewhere to hide and 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 the director has chosen to present the actor fully naked as yeah. well, you know, which is hey. very rare <laughs> and and make him look very very vulnerable and very very pathetic and <laughs> things like that. Mm. Um, so I I think that um, I don't think the portrayal of um, Kind of the, the female bodies in the film, it. I think there's an awareness that it's quite an unusual thing, in the sense yeah. that it makes Christian um, uncomfortable because he's not used to the idea of, uh, you know, positive, an audience. varied <laughs> um, portrayals of female nudity. Certainly not in that situation, but probably not in any situation. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, absolutely. But I, uh, what I would say is that the film does also, though, kind of give us um, that sense of um, that it's the, the not only the female community. Um, maybe for those people, for those listeners who've not seen the bit we're talking about, essentially what happens is that Christian um, has to have sex with this young um, girl from the community. And he, he is, you know, this act is witnessed and then participated in by pretty much, it seems like all the women from mm. from the community they are kind of witness to that and they are kind joke of them, yeah. join yeah um so but so, so i think the the film does sort of somewhat frame kind of that female kind of i'm not going to call it sexual aggression because i don't think that's what's happening but there's a, a a female sexual agency in that scene in the fact that it's it's you know it's very much framed as a female community experience that is sort of seen as aberrant and unusual and, 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 and so therefore kind of part of the horror spectacle. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, it, I mean, that sequence in particular, and I mean, we'll get to Wickerman in, in a minute, but it, it sort of having the sexually or highly sexualized women and big groups of naked women, again, I think it's just from my uneducated on this area's point of view, again, I think it's another another lazy trope mm. to put in there to just you know the communities they're they're not not savage but you know they're so out there that they, they'll they'll just get naked yeah, yeah. all the time and do these big sexy rituals yeah. and these big sort of almost orgy type situations yeah, and that, that's and terrible I think it, again, <laughs> yeah and it's just i think it's another yeah. sort of um re- reductive and lazy possibly sort of you know narrative little yeah corner to have in there yeah. i think I think it I certainly think... can be, but I think the film does mitigate it to some extent. I mean, and I think it's mm. important to say that... Um, by burning him. <laughs> uh, well, well, no, so by the fact that, for instance, we should say, having just speculated, we, we weren't sure whether it's all the women in the community who are involved in this act. It isn't all the women, is it? Because in the immediately following scene, Danny enters the building and sees what's going on and oh, runs out yeah. and is mm. distressed and yes. a load of women appears to comfort her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yes, no, her... Mm. her oh, yeah, they lead her yeah, off, yeah, don't they? Yeah, to distract her. And then, yeah, and and then I, I feel that that mitigates it against it, the, the kind of cliche horror reading of that scene because it does show a, the positive kind of sisterhood um, between the women in the community. See, I didn't, I didn't read it as a... I, I didn't think that... The, Ariasto is framing that as positive necessarily okay. um, only because so in in the film there are three instances as far as I can recall where the community start to kind of um, mirror or kind of emotionally converge with people who are suffering right yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's a first big ritual where that happens um, yeah. and then there's the bit that you're talking about with um uh, with Danny, and then there's at the end when they're, you know, when, yeah. when they start well, screaming from the fire. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So the, the the first and the last there are are sort of they seem perverse, don't they? Because um, these are people who are essentially dying, and the the community is mirroring those that experience very loudly yeah. in a very performative way. Um, and of course, it seems perverse because they're the ones who've caused that pain and that suffering, and they're not yeah. trying to comfort mm-hmm. those people. It's just, you know, it seems like a kind of performative extension of, of that experience. Whereas with that bit with Danny, um, they of course have, you know, the 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 thing with um, the girl whose name escapes me and Christian, and that they kind of, you know, they the the May Queen, the attendants of the May Queen, as she, she is at that point, have kind of diverted her so that this other thing can happen. And then when they mm-hmm. see her, you know, kind of are in pain, they also then start to kind of join with her in, you know, in sobbing and wailing and you know performing that. Um, that you know kind of that grief and um and her sorrow and what struck me with that is that idea that that's very much the idea that that is somehow perverse and not good and part of the kind of horror comes from a perspective uh, a very western um perspective of how we deal with emotions that you know Mm -hmm. if we see somebody in pain that 
in the West, what we tend to do is try to sort of quell their suffering by being sympathetic, by, you know, kind of hugging or whatever, or talking to them or giving, you know, if you're British, have a cup of tea, um, right. you know, lots of sugar, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. just, you know, kind of, you know, be be sort of there for that person and let them experience it. We're, we're there, we're, you know, kind of... Um, there for comfort but we're not joining in that pain with them um Mm -hmm. and i don't want to go into too much detail but i have had experience of other cultures who have different ways of dealing with grief and pain which is much more like you know how ariasta presents that which is joining in it and you know kind of making that the noise which feels big you know as big as that person's grief feels right um Mm -hmm. and and that what I felt watching it is that why should we think that that's a bad thing? Why should we, you know, we'll be positioned to think that actually kind of um, expressing emotion alongside somebody who's having, you know, who's suffering. Why is that a bad thing? Um, mm. Yeah. Particularly I, when it, it creates solidarity and creates, you know, that person feeling like they are supported and that everybody understands how horrible they feel in that particular moment. Which is why I read that moment as kind of positive, yeah. really. Although I wasn't linking it to the other times in the film when they do do that uh, performative mimicking of mm. suffering, which you were talking about. Yeah, and that does complicate it. But uh, my reading was kind of that there is a, a degree of emotional support for Danny present in that scene that mm. she doesn't get from any of her friends no. from America. Mm. No, and I think it's it's also notable that, of course, she's the only female in that group as well. Well, so yeah. as if that's yeah. something that would you know that is lacking in her her kind of social life generally. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's really it's a really interesting moment in the film, and you know, like I said, I, I can kind of I have my own thoughts about it, and I, but I totally hear what you're you know what you're saying about it, and it is kind of complicated. Um, I mean, I suppose I feel that it's the best moment in the film. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's the moment of the film which I will think about when I think about this film. Yeah. Um, because I can't think of another film which has a scene like that. No. And it, it's mm. so powerful and, and so powerfully acted and done. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not really sure that... I, I can I can understand the things you're saying about it. Um, but I, I, I'm not really sure exactly what the correct reading is. Or, or mm. can there be many readings? And like I said, I find it quite positive. But there is something quite disturbing about it as well because yeah. because mm-hmm. of who we are and where we are from, and we're not used to that um, no. so much. It does, you know, it seems obviously very strange. And I think there's parts of your mind which, you know, feels for Danny and worries that is this like a kind of brainwashing um, yeah. that she's being sucked into. But at the same time, like I say, there is. It is clear that she's getting um, some kind of emotional comfort, that or, or emotional at least acknowledgement that she hasn't received elsewhere in the movie so far, or elsewhere in her life that we know of. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a really powerful moment. Yeah. Right. So the final thing I think just to talk about with Midsummer before we move on and it does have relevance to the Wicker Man is actually um, one of uh, Ariaster's kind of uh, research sources in writing this film so he draws really strongly on a uh, on a quite famous book um, written by James George Fraser called The Golden Bow um, A right. Study in Comparative Religion which was um, first published in 1890 um, 
And it, he's a, you know, kind of a Scottish anthropologist who basically kind of the the Golden Bow kind of focuses on uh, rites of magic and religion, uh, kind of traditional, kind of more ancient stuff. Um, and, you know, it, the kind of the book was seen as this um, treasure trove of insights into pre-Christian traditions. Um, so there's this, you know, kind of more broad anthropological movement in the kind of late Victorian era to sort of construct um in academia this um which then gets kind of propagated into kind of popular circles this idea of you know this kind of quite romantic um idea of um you know kind of particularly british um pre-christian traditions right um mm-hmm. and uh kind of traditional cultures um it's not it's not always british but um yeah, so this this book was really really important, um, and I think that um, uh, the fact that that's something that he draws on really really strongly, and 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 Fraser also talks about the the idea that um, uh, you know particularly in you know ancient times, kind of sacrifice was quite a, a usual kind of means of ritual, you know, to kind of honour gods you would sacrifice, um, and you know, and sometimes that those sacrifice we're talking eons ago, by the way. Uh, sometimes the sacrifices were you know kind of human uh, or animal or whatever. Um, can you know in a contemporary paganism they're not a horror often would have you believe otherwise. Um, yes. <laughs> but, you know they're more symbolic than they are kind of actual. Um, and uh yeah so the kind of the the Asta uses that book as a sort of kind of jumping off point and i think the idea that you know that we have two characters christian and josh who are anthropology students and whose work very much mm-hmm. seems to be very much in the kind of vein of george you know um, um james george fraser um but of course the, the the sort of slight issue again with those things is the idea that you know with that era of anthropology and also lots of you know not just that era but anthropology in general is often it tends to be sort of you know kind of white middle class colonial perspectives which are you know kind of looking yeah. at you know kind of the cultures that exist slightly outside of those things and sort of the mm-hmm. yeah the need to understand the quaint beliefs of primitive folk uh, in yeah. order yeah. so that often that they can be managed and civilised and I'm doing air quotes obviously mm-hmm. around civilised because it's hugely problematic um, yeah. so the I think there's what's interesting is the film sort of kind of acknowledges that as a problem in that there's obviously the, there's a scene where Josh asks if he can um he's shown the kind of the the one of the the books that they you know kind of hold in their um kind of library building um that's obviously mm-hmm. really important to you know the tradition and to the kind of lineage and the heritage of 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 the community um and he asks if he can take photographs of it and of course he's told no you can't um mm-hmm. And uh, so then he creeps back in later at night um, in order to take photographs and do the things that he's, you know, been asked not to do, not being respectful of the wishes of, you know, the community that he's looking to kind of write about. Um, And of course, that costs him dearly um, uh, in the film. So I think that there is a sort of acknowledgement of the problems of that kind of area of study. Um, But... There is the Golden Mount as a text, although, you know, it's still very, very influential in uh, and important to some, not all pagans, um, that there is a sort of sense of, you know, it's not wasn't written by somebody who is who took that those communities seriously and that those traditions seriously. Sure. And it was and it's also slightly it's sensational. A, it's quite an old text yes. to be basing yeah. a modern film on. Mm. 
isn't it? Yeah. Really? But yeah, but the legacy of the Golden Bough is still kind of with us in terms of our understanding of, of, of paganism more broadly. Um, particularly because of the neo-pagan movement where people are trying to kind of recon, you know, kind of reconstruct those, you know, because, you know, some of them got were lost completely. Um, so it's kind of books like the Golden Bough that, you know, some practitioners have found really helpful in, you know, kind of reconstructing those things. But it's, yeah, not without problems. Um, yeah. And, you know, the idea that it can be, some of those things can be interpreted rather literally, um, whereas well, often they're more symbolic than literal. Well, I mean, I, this would probably be the point to mention that I had a quick chat with a friend of mine who is Swedish and has been yes. to a Midsummer um, yeah. festival. Yeah, and and mm. and also has seen the film and yes. enjoyed it. But I said, so so is it? Is there anything like that? Um, and she said, well, basically, uh, obviously not. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all, all the more extreme uh, parts of the the rituals don't happen. Um, and really, I mean, obviously, there are different midsummer festivals yeah. in different parts of Sweden. Um, and you know you can't generalise about them and the film does kind of sp- present this one as a specific one yeah. that nobody really knows about yeah. um, mm. so it kind of covers itself in a way for, for inaccuracies by doing that but you know uh, she essentially gave me the impression that it's basically like Oktoberfest people <laughs> just like <laughs> drinking uh, drinking and you know, yeah, yeah, getting yeah. a bit wasted enjoying yeah. the the sun yeah. and, and and dressing up and things like yeah. that so yeah and that's all lovely and good you know um, <laughs> but it's like you know and and, and it, for me it, it it's slight i find it slightly offensive um that just the title of the film you know kind of very to call it midsummer which is the name of the festival, kind of is this big generalising kind of way of framing the film. That okay. sort of, you know, do you know what I mean? Because that, that association is now going to be, you know, kind of linked with this this film, which well, is, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so rather than calling it something really specific that might allude to the kind of really specific and also very different and kind of aberrant way of the interpretation of these traditions, which is clearly, you know, um, in the film, I it mean, doesn't. It makes these big kind of. It could have called it Midsummer Murders. I could have done. Because there are murders. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, should we move on to The Wicker Man? Uh, sure. Yes. But can Although I ask. I think you... Because the two films are so similar, we're going yes. to come back and talk about Midsummer yeah, 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 again yeah, yeah, this part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, Dan, can I ask you to. I mean, you're, you're I think, the, the Wicker Man expert. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to do a little intro for those? I'll do my you know. intro. Uh, uh, yeah. as, again, um, listeners who have regularly listened to this podcast might know that I have an affinity with this movie. So, um, uh, <laughs> this is one of my three favourite films, and and I do know it very well. Um, but I've never really uh, looked at it from a pagan perspective before, so that's what I think will be really interesting for listeners who don't know The Wicker Man. Or who have only seen the Nicolas Cage remake. <laughs> there are people like that. I once lectured oh, yeah. to some sixth formers and I said, who's seen The Wicker Man? And about three people put their hands up. Oh, no, uh, uh, you know, most of them put their hands up. But then I said, but who's seen the original 1973 The Wicker Man? And all the hands went down except three. Yeah. Um, right. So I was just like, oh, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> but, so anyway, uh, in The Wicker Man, uh, which was, uh, it's a British, uh, it's 
kind of referred to as a horror film, but again, like Midsummer, that's um, up for debate. Um, but it's mm-hmm. a British production from the mid seventies, nineteen seventy three, written by Anthony Schaffer and directed by Robin Hardy, about a Scottish police officer, uh, Sergeant Howie, played by Edward Woodward, who receives a personalised message um, that a child has gone missing on this island called Summer Isle. So he uh, he flies out alone to the island, which doesn't seem very procedural, <laughs> but there we go. It's the um, 1970s, though, so, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think we'll get away with it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, he, he lands on this island and essentially he's trying to... Uh, discover more information about the supposed disappearance of this girl but first the firstly the information that they give that the locals give him is very contradictory and secondly he becomes slowly aware that the the island is um entirely subject to a, a kind of pagan religion he is and has been established explicitly by the film as a very um puritanical christian yeah. And he struggles to deal with this um, and, uh, you know, goes to the, the laird of the island played by Christopher Lee, who is the only person in the movie who does <laughs> not have a real or dubbed Scottish accent. Um, <laughs> it's just like, he's just like, I'm Christopher Lee. I don't need to bother. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and um, it's quite similar to uh, Midsommar in that this character although he doesn't know that's what's going to happen to him, unlike the characters in Midsommar, is um, kind of involved in these pagan rituals which are going on. It's also around May Day, um, although in this film that would actually be May. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, as he is inveigled into this, things go from... he, He tries to keep on investigating the supposed missing girl. He does find out some things, but basically things go from bad to worse for him, um, mm-hmm. as the listener can probably guess where it's going once again. Um, uh, yeah, and so that's the, the plot. I actually think um, it's a plot that is very familiar, and yet, strangely, there aren't that many movies that use it. As You know, lone character um, goes to a, a strange community... Um, and is inveigled in some way. It's become mm-hmm. more common in the last ten years because it's become such a part of the folk horror genre. Yeah, and I think it yeah. applies to movies like Get Out, which don't use paganism uh, to define the community. Um, I, I think it's a really neat plot. Um, and what I love about the movie is that. Uh, it's just so well written, I think, uh, as um, mm-hmm. I think of it as the one of the greatest original scripts, as in not based on a book or anything, written for a British film. You know, they talk about maybe the best original um, American film script is Chinatown that Robert Town wrote in 1974. I think this is as good as that. I think every line of dialogue is um, beautifully crafted and really well delivered. And I think the the reason why I fell in love with it is because um, as I watched it, I watched it once and, and enjoyed it as a story. Um, 
but as you watch it more, um, every single small detail I started to get um, great pleasure out of. I think it's so funny. Um, I think it's basically mm-hmm. a comedy um, up until the ending. Um, <laughs> Which isn't funny. Um, no. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> um, uh, and, you know, and, and not just the dialogue, but also things like the music in it. Like Midsummer, it's got a lot of um, stage pagan rituals, which mm-hmm. frequently use specially written songs created just for mm. the film that are wonderful. I've also listened to the soundtrack <laughs> a lot. And all the music and some of the singing in the film was done by the composer Paul Giovanni, who's an American and who didn't come from a folk music background or anything. Obviously, he wasn't Scottish, but um, he, he kind of researched madrigals and created his own to fit the story. Um, I think one of the reasons I like Midsummer is I think that it looks like what the Wicker Man wanted to look like because, um, you know, it, it, it's all about uh, a pagan festival in high summer. It's very daylight. It's very outdoors. But the Wicker Man mm. is kind of clearly filmed in rainy bits of Scotland. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it really wants, you know, the colours want to pop. Um, the, 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 mm-hmm. You want to get a visual sense of joy from it. I do think that there is a strong sense of, of joy in a lot of... Um, what you see and, and how the people relate to each other but I think you kind of have to slightly imagine it because it doesn't come across visually so much um, and I think another reason why I grew to increasingly love it is because I mean I come from a Christian background and it really challenged my beliefs I don't find it um, uh, I don't find it straightforward in the way it pitches Christianity versus paganism and, and Christianity is um, good and paganism isn't uh, or, or that one is true and the other isn't. Um, I think people who are fans of the movie are often um, agnostic or non-religious and mm-hmm. uh, they really see it as a conflict between two different belief systems um, but it's not about saying uh, which one's true? It's more no, about the fact that, that um, they're saying that it's can can each belief system accept the other for what it is, and I think it's really striking in the movie that um, <clears throat> the the pagan characters seem to have well, they obviously do have a much greater understanding of Christianity than Howie has of their religion. There's yeah. that wonderful, oddly beautiful moment <coughs> towards the end where, um, uh, how I mean, spoilers, but you know we've said that Howie is re- is realizing his fate to be sacrificed, um, and Christopher Lee says to him, uh, because of the way, uh, because of your fervent Christian beliefs, we are able to give you a rare gift, that of a martyr's death, and you will sit with the saints. Um, and obviously that's no comfort, really, um, to Howie at the time. But, uh, yeah. I think, Cheers, mate. <laughs> I think the movie does a great job of conveying uh, a level of knowledge and self-knowledge to most of the characters kind of throughout. I mean, a bit like Midsommar, everybody's really... Well, they're sort of really nice, but also not... 
you know, they make fun of Harry a bit, but to an extent that um, you feel like if he wasn't so humorless himself and such a stuffed mm. shirt, they wouldn't do that. Or, he, you know, he's, <laughs> he's causing his own offence. And also, um, they give him loads of opportunities to just leave. You know, they're, they're <laughs> manipulating him, but they, they, they put him in a position where he goes to the sacrifice point of his own free will, um, which is a plot element which is another part of the movie which I found made more and more sense the more I watch it. And, you know, as people who are fans of the film will be aware, there are different cuts of the movie, um, and some of these plot threads are, are, are minimised in some cuts. So... Um, it's not always clear, but in the full-length version of the film, you can kind of see a domino effect of each opportunity he gets to leave. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I kind of adore the intricacy of that. Um, yeah, I, I think I should stop. I think I could go on. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you, you, you get the point. <laughs> uh, shall I hand over to you, Stella? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got that much to say. I mean, I, in all honesty, I have seen The Wicker Man, but I've seen it once, and it was a while ago um, before I had my daughter, so it's I've, it's at least 15 years since I've seen it. But so you know, when I was when I was watching it, I would have been in my early 20s, I guess, when I finally got around to watching it. So you know, late to the party as usual. But I do remember feeling like the vast majority of the film was kind of, like you said, kind of funny. Um, yeah. And I wasn't sure if I was finding it funny because it was just very, very 70s um, and bits of using that sort of, this is a weird, culty, pagan community, so therefore it's all going to be a little bit sort of soft-core pornography at times as well. Oh, yes. Um, like the sequence where he's in the room and there's the girl in the room next to him and she's dancing <laughs> around naked. So it's just like, what? But I yeah. think when I watched it, I just saw that as, you know, just 70s excuse for a young, pretty girl to get a rack out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the film, I, I did enjoy it. I remember being totally on the edge of my seat when I watched it. But the final sequence of The Burning... And, and the huge, enormous wicker man that he has to climb up and get into. And, you know, everyone's standing around and singing and you can just hear him screaming inside. That final bit stuck with me for years. Right. Just kept thinking about it and, you know, giving a little, that's horrible. That's really, really horrible. And I watched it with um, with, with my husband. We, we watched it at the same time and he'd never seen it before. And then when the, the credits rolled at the end, we were both just like... Oh my god, right. <laughs> that's awful! <laughs> but you know, it's it, 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 it just burning. <laughs> it's just burn, burn him to death. It's just burn him. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we were the both. Roll, the yeah. wicker man is still burning. Still, it's just there. It's just still going, and yeah. we're just sat there going, "Bloody hell!" So yeah, I think you know, ninety-five percent of the film is like this is just a, a bit seventies. And then at the end, she's like, good God, which I think maybe, which is why, because I found the end of The Wicker Man so harrowing and so haunting that maybe the burning in Midsummer, I was just a bit, oh, <laughs> yeah, they've burnt them. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> it's 
probably going to sting, but they don't seem that bothered. Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't think you felt this way quite, Stella, but I, I think a lot of that to do with the fact that if you've already seen The Wicker Man or you are aware of mm. it, you are, you've seen, you're watching Midsummer, and even subconsciously you kind of know where that's going, so it's not shocking. Yeah. And they, yeah, they would it's have not shocking to and... go to additional effort to make that have anything like the same impact, whereas in The Wicker Man, yeah. like you say, it's... Um, I, I mean, I was talking about it with Howard, and he's, he thinks it's basically a black comedy kind of thriller for, for most of it. Yeah. And... Mm. Uh, with with five minutes of absolute terror at the end. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I, I guess suppose the only thing that Midsummer could have done to make the burning bit burning sequence more to make it more would be to show to make it very very gory. Yeah. And you know to show to show them on fire and what happens to a body when it's on fire and probably nobody really wants to see that and that's not the kind of film that it was so to stick that on the end would have been ridiculous. Um, but yeah, definitely. I was, I've because of how haunted I was by the burning in the Wicker Man. When I saw it in Midsummer, it just didn't hit the same note for me because I don't, I'm, well, bad pun, but I'm all burnt out. Hey, <laughs> on people being burned. <laughs> uh, can I ask, have you seen the Nicolas Cage version? Um, do you know what? I don't know. <laughs> All right. No, you definitely know if you've seen it. I, I... Yeah, probably, probably not. I think maybe what I've done is suggested to my husband that we do watch it, and he's been like, "No, of course we're not going to watch that." But you know, you know, because I've said before, I do will champion a remake, and I'm always up for giving it a go. Um, I yeah, I. I w- but the, but this other there's a problem I have as well. I do watch quite a lot of films and forget, so. Right. I might, I'll, I'll check with Owen. But I would <laughs> have suggest... Have we seen the second Wicker Man? I would suggest just watch the last 10 minutes of the remake just to compare... Oh, right, the, OK. Because obviously they both end with the burning. And just, yeah. just, just to compare how it's done, um, I think... Yeah. You, you won't regret it. <laughs> it <that> <laughs> well, I won't regret watching Nicolas Cage burn to death. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> Because um, yeah. I see, I think I've seen it, but I don't know if I'm just giving myself, you know, like false memory syndrome. Right. Where I where I haven't, I'm just taking on somebody else's memory of watching it. I don't know. I'll, I'll ask my husband; he'll know. He's got a good catalogue in his head of films that I've seen but <laughs> have forgotten. He's a good husband. But so well, that he could is. be a whole episode <laughs> we do in the future because you could just say so much about <laughs> that movie. But um, uh, so that's us, Kirsty. I'm I'm really mm-hmm. interested yeah. to hear your point of view on this movie. Yeah, so I just wanted to just come back to one of the things that you said, which is, um, just to paraphrase, um, or at least my understanding of what you said, which is that you felt it was sort of like these two different religions sort of, or, you know, trying to understand each other. Belief systems. It, yeah. Belief systems. Oh, in, yeah. in com- well, in conflict, not trying to understand yeah. each other. But... Yes, yeah, yeah. But I just, what I would say to that is, yeah, but one only one of them demands that somebody die as oh, part yeah. of their, you know... So in yeah. terms of, and, and also the, you know, kind of how he doesn't arrive, I mean, he's a zealot, but he doesn't arrive as a zealot, as in that that's his job. His job is to try and uncover the truth. And so therefore he represents, you know, kind of justice and, you yeah. know, and kind mm-hmm. of pursuit of, um, yeah, kind of bringing wrongdoers to justice. So I think the film kind of naturally encodes that sort of sense of right and wrong um, along, you know, kind of spiritual religious lines. Um, where... Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I think that yeah. To get my perspective on it, 
you need to watch it more than once. I think that's definitely yeah. the way you <laughs> okay. actually read it. How many times have it. you watched it, Dan? <laughs> oh, but yeah, So, I think what's interesting as well, though, is that the film it, it does exactly the same thing as Midsummer does. In that, the, now we've got we've got this, you know, kind of it's the Outer Hebrides, isn't it? That's where the island is. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of Scottish, yeah. yeah, Celtic pagan tradition as this other exotic and threatening. Um, and then again, I think you know the, the kind of the representations of the culture in terms of being full of kind of lively, kind of quite performative, um, you know, often kind of quite life-affirming, um, you know, yeah. kind of tr- traditions and practices. Um, and not least the ending where, you know, they demand a human sacrifice and that is by burning, which I think is, you know, the, the fact that both films ultimately um, uh, burn Christians of different ilks um, yes, is a do. sort of kind of inverted kind of poetic, Bob Pog sort of perverse pagan, you know, kind of poetic ending in the, you know, the like, you know, like the witches being burned. Um, so Can I just say this one yeah. thing very quickly, though? I think that the main difference between Midsommar and The Wicker Man for me, though, is that in The Wicker Man, I feel like I understand why yeah. they're burning him and the belief system that has led them to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in The Midsommar, I don't. No. Um, no, and I, I think it's also mm-hmm. it's also noted well to be noted the fact that of course that that Christian isn't the the protagonist in um yeah, so the no. protagonist isn't being burnt in Midsummer, but right, yeah. and we kind of understand what, why she would make that decision because he's been a terrible boyfriend. I mean I'm not sure he deserves that fate, but you know, <laughs> he's been pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um <clears throat> I don't think we blame her. No. No. No, definitely not. Um, so I think so. We the 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 Wicker Man makes it really kind of clear that actually what the you know the kind of culture of Samaral is a neo pagan tradition because it goes back to his father, doesn't it? The Christopher Lee's character's it's father. Two generations, I think. Okay, it's his grandfather. Yeah, yeah. father. And it's, okay, it, it, so it's been it's a definite created tradition based on yeah. older traditions or inspired by older yes. traditions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that again is being aligned with an environmental kind of concern, um, because uh, the Christopher Lee character he's in he's in agriculture, isn't he? In some yes. way. Yeah, that's right. Um, so again, we've got that idea that he's sort of responsible for the maintenance of the community, and that it's in his interest to you know kind of make sure that the the land is fertile and that there are crops and that they're you know as it's a you know kind of pagan again sort of slightly lazy pagan trope, isn't it? Is that pagans are interested in their crops and they're going to right. kill people <laughs> in order to make sure the crops are good. Um, <laughs> So that's you know, and that in it's, although it's not it's not as overtly stated in Midsummer, it's kind of you know the, the, it's part of the 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 kind of um, discourse of the film. Um, yeah. So the uh, the Wicker Man also gives us a kind of mixture of genuine genuine pagan tradition um, and folklore and you know and. Um, uh, ideology in that you know it focuses around um, midsummer, not midsummer, Beltane, May Day, where there is you know that's the fertility festival. It's the beginning of summer, and we kind of you know the the fertility uh, fertility act aspect comes from the idea of needing things to grow, um, and needing for the you know for the uh, to kind of be uh, fertile, um, and so the kind of the emphasis of sex and uh, on sex and and fertility is obviously kind of obvious. But again, the film, The Wicked Man, does take that 
sort of slightly male gazy approach, doesn't it, to that idea of fertility? Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. And then, you know, there are other little kind of references like the kind of the is it the pub that's called the Green Man, which yes. is, you know, he's quite an important kind of pagan figure, particularly for Beltane. Yeah. Um, so he does it does draw on those genuine kind of pagan British pagan traditions, but then mixes them, even though they're a neo pagan, you know, culture uh, mixes with sort of deliberately ridiculous and outdated folk practices. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, having putting uh, toads in your mouth if you've got a sore throat yeah yeah not sure that works <laughs> but that that is the, the inclusion no. of those kind of things which kind of start to make us question the idea that you know that they or should they be taken seriously um mm. uh yeah so including that kind of stuff is not necessarily that helpful um mm. yeah so and i yeah um i think for me at the two and I, the, the, this is the film that i recognize more of my own kind of pagan um experience in but i think that's because it is drawing on british isles um stuff yeah. rather than kind of sweden i've not been to sweden um sure. so um yeah and it's obviously anchoring its action around that kind of time of you know the of around Beltane and the importance of, you know, kind of keeping the crops coming, um, which, you know, as I said, is already kind of connecting that idea of that that's the most important thing in a pagan culture is is the, the fertility mm-hmm. of the crops. Um, but interestingly, just to go back to last week, is that often the kind of crop failure was often a reason cited, you know, for somebody being a witch, as in, my crops have failed, so my crazy um, old lady neighbour, it must be her fault, because <laughs> I don't have any crops. Um, so I would say it's not an exclusively <laughs> pagan problem, um, no, or interest, no. crop, you know, kind of the, you know, health of crops. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted just to kind of, before we, you know, again, always aware of time, um, just sure. sort of want to draw, draw things together by bringing in a quotation from um, Emily D. Edwards, who I referenced last week, who talked about this kind of um, the witch archetypes. Um, and I just want to draw on one of them. So she talks about the sh- shamanic witch, um, which typically tend to be the representations of witchcraft and witches that are non-white in cinema um, and television mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to argue and actually she does in her book that it's not nece- it's not exclusively kind of um, people of colour that are represented as this type of witch so this is her definition of the shamanic witch um, which I would argue can be applied to you know representations of pagans um, so the shamanic witch draws from foreign cultures and exotic religious beliefs um, film and television borrow and distort rich from Caribbean, especially Haitian, African, Native American, South American, Asian and New Zealand religion, religious customs to create media versions of the, she, of the shamanic witch. What unites this category is a film perspective that makes the foreign shaman's beliefs and practices seem bizarre. The shamanic witch tends to be a practitioner of pagan religions, often in conflict with the beliefs of the film's hero. The film may depict the shaman's magic as real within the world of the film, um, or the world the film creates, but just as often the powers are, are questionable or they are defeated by the truth of science or the more civilised religious uh, belief of the protagonist. So I would argue that, you know, both because uh, both of these films present Northern Europe, you know, <laughs> in some ways, you know... Um, right. Uh, Sweden or certainly Outer Hebrides, particularly rural and remote communities, that that is a type of exotic, particularly if we're looking at 
films that are made from a more urban city, you know, kind of um, perspective. Mm. Um, and like yeah. I said, um, Edwards does talk about um, The Wicker Man in those terms, although the film was, uh, the book was published obviously before um, uh, Midsummer. So yeah. I think it could be um, applied. And then I've just uh, sort of in thinking about, you know, these two films, I thought about what other films that I'm aware of or have seen that do similar things. So I just want to just kind of give a name check to four other films. So the first one is uh, The Ritual um, uh, in 2017, directed by David yeah, Bruckner. Um, mm. So again, it's it's more human sacrifice in Sweden, um, tied in this t- <laughs> this case to the worship of uh, of Jotun, um, which are uh, giants or trolls, I think, in Norse Norse mythology. Um, yeah. Uh, again, connected to I think from the Norse mythology rather than the Marvel mythology to Loki. Um, right. So the film uses symbols and mythology which are part, you know, kind of using or oh, in in incorporating them into the iconography of that particular horror so they're really culturally specific but it becomes you know kind of part of this horrible um thing i have to say i confess i only watched half of that because it just got too much for me (laughs) right (laughs) just i thought i know where this is going i don't i don't want i don't want to go there um uh, it is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I think that's it, the reason it's good is part of the reason why I turned it off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> decided I didn't want to kind of go all the way on that journey. Um, and then, uh, have you, Dan? Have you seen Darklands? Did I've you see that? Nineteen ninety-seven. Oh. I remember we talked about it at uni, yeah. and it was actually on TV while yeah. we were at uni. So I watched a bit yeah. of it then. I, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it available anywhere else. No, I was trying to do a bit of research into it this morning and there's very little about it because it's crap. Um, yeah. I would argue. <laughs> it was, well, it was a British horror film made in the 90s, so of course it is, but, but yeah. go on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was, sort of, it was dubbed as the Welsh Wicker Man. Um, in the it's yeah. uh, we've got, uh, it stars Craig Fairbrass, who's, you know, who's obviously From always busy. Yes, um, and he is, I think, a, a London journalist who uh, ends up looking into uh, kind of neo-pagans who worship the devil, so obviously that's real, um, and uh, <laughs> or who sacrifice humans, uh, again, also real. Um, there is they're called techno-pagans, sort of, aren't they? Well, I was going to say, they are, there's a kind of techno-pagan aesthetic, which, which is a sort of kind of goth, uh, you know, kind of flower crown, UV paint aesthetic going on, which is very... You know, oh post-human traffic kind of, you know, oh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's it's not. It's, <laughs> I reckon I'll swear yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to go down in history. But probably nobody has has thought or talked about the film until me just now on this podcast. <laughs> um, and then the, the other two I want to talk about so, uh, is The Apostle, Gareth Evans, um, also Welsh, uh, 2018. Um, so this is a really interesting film in that it's set on a remote, unspecified Welsh island. It stars Michael Sheen, um, so that's always you know good for, you, for your money. Oh, yeah. um, it's on Netflix at the moment. <laughs> um, and basically the film sort of suggests, well, it, does, it, it, it has this, um, at the centre of it, the idea that this... Um, what seem to be very kind of Christian, they're not, but they have all the trappings of kind of Christian, you know, kind of um, uh, cult um, uh, in the sort of late 
uh, kind of Victorian Edwardian era um, and they're on an island and they have imprisoned a, the goddess of the island and even though she doesn't want to they are essentially are sacrificing people to her so that they the crops will grow again crops yay um, <laughs> but I thought what's kind of interesting is that is that they're not overtly pagan and they are kind of using her against her will um, which I thought was quite uh, when interesting when you say she's the goddess I mean I haven't seen this yes. film um, yeah. So is she literally a goddess, or is she just someone they've chosen to represent no, that no. for them? Uh, so, well, no, I think she's well. It, it's it's not she's a goddess, but not necessarily in the way in which the ending of the film kind of is unusual. It's an unusual ending for a goddess. That's all I would say. Okay, um, but, right. she, but she very much <laughs> it's very she's kind of ingrown into the island, um, and every and there are sequences where every time she is fed against her will that, you know, kind of everything comes to life and flowers grow and crops grow and, you know. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a kind of interesting kind of uh, folk horror, I would say. Slightly different take on it. Um, very worth seeing, I would say. Um, but I'm not going to give away the ending. And then finally, the uh, Kill List uh, yes, in 2011, Ben Wheatley, which is, you know, includes a pagan mystery what i've written is mystery death ritual cult as in what like it's not at all <laughs> clear in that film why they're actually doing what they're doing like no. what it's all for but there's very much mm -hmm. a th you know a set of things that need to happen in order for them to uh, be happy yeah um and oh, again, yes. it, it, yeah it represents sort of a, a type of paganism that really um in i would argue more than wicker man and more than um um a midsummer craves cruelty and death. Right. Mm -hmm. so, well, at least that's as much as mm. we can interpret. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yes, it's very vague. I mean, actually, Midsummer has a bit of this, but it reminds me more of Ari Aster's other film, Hereditary. Yeah. Um, yeah. In that, mm. the reason we know so little about the cult in Kill List is because we see the whole film through, mostly through the eyes yeah, of these characters yeah, who just, yeah, they get don't it. It's, yeah. it's almost as if Sergeant Howie turned up on the island and they burn yeah. him immediately before he could actually yeah. have <laughs> yeah. to talk to anyone. He doesn't like, even learn <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's just um, a series of increasingly disturbing events really yes. kill this. Yeah, 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 um, absolutely. Mm. Um and again, I think with all of those films, I think it's it's important to note that all the protagonists that is they are all male and they're all outsiders to that pagan culture which create the horror. So oh. it's it's never mm -hmm. you know, we're never taking a female perspective and we're never within the community to begin with. Um right. so yeah. So, and again, the same are true obviously of the, the, the two main films that we've talked about. Um yeah. which I suppose is not unexpected given its horror so that's why I just wanted to end on talking a little bit about um, the representations of paganism outside of horror because we would rather expect um, horror to take that that approach with it um, um, but you can find slightly different representations elsewhere so I want to talk about uh, Frozen 2, I want to talk about Eurovision uh, whatever <laughs> the Song of Fire saga <laughs> and I also want to talk about Game of Thrones very quickly um, so have either of you two seen Frozen 2? I'm afraid I haven't no thankfully not no. <laughs> no, I haven't seen any of those I'm afraid okay. 
Okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it too much, should you ever hope to kind of or have aspirations <laughs> of watching it. I imagine not, um, given, you know. No. But, uh, well, yeah, yeah. They're the kind of films, let's put it this way, that if I do watch them, I won't mind already yes. knowing what's going to happen. No. But uh, well, as, as, as a feminist and a, a parent and a, and a pagan, um, Frozen 2 uh, just brought me so much joy, I can't even begin to tell you. Um, oh, really? So uh, uh, Elsa, of course, is the, you know, I queen um so she's kind of called to her mission uh in frozen 2 through which is to kind of um restore the this balanced uh in arendelle the kingdom that she lives she doesn't understand it's out of balance but she's called by voices that only she can hear um and that is framed by the film and the fact that she has a closer relationship to nature than her sister or the kind of other characters around her and in kind of going off on that journey she wakes kind of spirits in the forest which are are kind of presented as um, representing the different elements so you know kind of fire air earth and water and she discovers the truth of what has happened in the past that she needs to write um which is a kind of uh, a, you know kind of historical and again hereditary problem um through visions that are presented to her through these elemental forces um so she and her sister anna work together with the indigenous uh, north Older people in the film to write this previous uh, wrong which is inherently environmental and it's something that has happened partly because of not i wouldn't i'm not gonna say kind of colonialism but a, a sort of sense that the kind of white um, power structures in Arendelle feel they have a right to do a particular thing that they should they don't. Um, so one of the mm -hmm. film's biggest lesson is inherently pagan one, which is that the, the film is about us needing to live in harmony with nature rather than to view ourselves as separate or in opposition to it. Um, and the you know kind of Anna's uh, so Elsa's sort of big recognition really is that she that that's what her calling is is to do that and to be you know more in touch with her pagan um, calling than it is to be the queen of Arendelle. Um, so um, so it's lovely from that perspective. Um, it doesn't they, they never use the word paganism. They never talk about gods um, because obviously it's Disney and that would upset too many people. But sure. it's you know if it's it's there. It, you know, in in the encoding um, of the whole thing. Um, have either of you seen okay. the um, Will Ferrell um, no, Eurovision film? No, I've it. not. I'd really like to see the Pierce Brosnan <laughs> bit. Um, yes. Possibly, thing, <laughs> but certainly yeah. not. But. No. So this is a, a comedy that's on uh, Netflix and was released uh, about a month ago. Um, so Will Ferrell and um, Rachel McAdams are, are the Icelandic um, entry or the Icelandic um, band who have been entered into Eurovision. Um, and of course, what's uh, what's it's played for laughs, and I'm not sure that that's entirely helpful. But we do have this idea that somehow that Iceland has. Uh, is more pagan than most other countries and they don't, do have a very strong folkloric tradition um, and they, they, they do um, and we you know they have kind of common beliefs in in magical being like like elves um, and it is <laughs> like the the female character Sigrid um, feels very strongly connected to that and those energies and she honors those things um, 
and that um, the Will Ferrell character takes, you know, takes the mick out of her for much of the film for believing those things. But then um, she's proven to be true, uh, to pro proven to be right in her belief in those things. And that the elves, in particular, sort of narratively help out later on um, in the film. Um, so I thought it's kind of nice, you know, kind of legitimising in some ways of kind of pagan beliefs, but in a kind of comedic way. So I'm not entirely sure it's as helpful as it might first appear. Um, right. And then fi finally, I wanted to talk about Game of Thrones. So again, I'll talk about this in a way that doesn't spoil anything, just in case you do watch it. But Game of Thrones is, you know, this big kind of historic kind of fantasy epic. Um, and the belief systems, I mean, there's a lot of work, I think, that's been done around the kind of belief systems um, and the religions of... Um, the world of Game of Thrones um, and there are lots of different you know religions um, but in um, we, we follow principally the Stark family and they're the kind of the emotional heart of uh, the whole saga um, and they the, within the family they talk about the old gods um, and later we meet characters called children of the forest um, and so there's there's a kind of pagan influence in the creation of, of of those kind of characters and for the Stark family they you know they clearly have a um, polytheistic um, religion in that they talk about gods rather than god um, and mm. that they have in the middle of their you know kind of their their castle there is um a tree um called the heart tree which represents you know it represents their home it's their heritage and it's a place where lots of really important um and quite emotional um you know kind of encounters and conversations happen and because it's so strongly linked to you know that their their ancestors and um you know they where they come from um so just though it's kind of interesting that the the game of thrones doesn't again present lots of really kind of clearly old pagan kind of practices but it's it underpins you know the kind of the the cultures that are presented um in throughout that whole saga um yeah so i thought that was a kind of not a terrible representation but again not one that's based in reality so so okay. yeah because it's clearly I'd like fantasy to look at it on that basis though yeah um, yeah and, and there's and then there's also witch characters to... and so okay uh well i was just gonna say it, I find it interesting in the same way that I find Robin of Sherwood interesting. Yeah. Because it's it's the taking history and mixing it with various kind of folkloric things. Yeah. And, um, and I think George R. R. Martin, who wrote the original novels, has you know kind of been very uh, open about the variety of genuine historical kind of references and um, and inspirations that he's taken, which often actually are kind of British in their origins. Um, mm. So yeah. So it's it's not unexpected that that stuff kind of filters through into um yeah the kind of the diegesis um well yeah i mean it was Game pointed out to me recently that um the the starks and the lannisters are basically the yorkists yeah yeah and the yeah. lancastrians yeah and absolutely like that, so. yeah um <clears throat> so again time um so just yeah. to kind of wrap it all up then um i well i think my kind of thinking about representations of paganism in horror and elsewhere are you know not dissimilar to what we're saying about kind of representations of witchcraft again is that they tend to be um created by people who aren't pagan who wouldn't define themselves as pagan mm -hmm. um and so we lack you know the kind of more authentic representations that perhaps would be useful um and i think as a as a result of the fact that we so often see 
what seem to be more kind of authentic representations but in horror means that our you know kind of traditions and our celebrations so in Shropshire we have um a kind of a, a Green Man festival on um May Day every year um in a small place called Clun um and uh, the Green Man comes um and does battle with the um Frost Queen um and whoever wow. wins kind of has uh you know so it's kind of it helps to um to indicate what kind of um summer we will have of course he always wins of course he does right. um so there's a big celebration <laughs> of yes there's gonna be a fantastic summer um and even things like um chester um does a midsummer watch which is a big um uh, you know or several big kind of um uh uh, processions, carnivals through the streets, um, and Dan, if you went and s- went and saw uh, Midsummer Watch, you would probably recognise, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of elements from The Wicker Man in terms of, you know, there's lots of paper papier mâché um, right. uh, constructions and people in lots of makeup and 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 medieval kind of garb having a very rowdy time. Um, right. and I think the, the thing is, is if you you don't and you know if you don't don't appreciate them as being part of a kind of pagan tradition um is that they those kind of things probably seem a bit scary if you've right. only seen mm. paganism through horror films yeah yeah um particularly if you're i mean chester is different because that happens in the middle of the city center but you know kind of clan is in the middle of nowhere and if you're a, you know a, a city person <laughs> visiting and you happen to cross this thing you might go okay maybe we leave okay. we leave this place pretty soon <laughs> um but then they're, they're you know kind of lovely celebrations and the community gets involved and you know they are very overtly pagan as well um oh, so yeah, we need more of that stuff, mm. more friendly. Where pa- you know, paganism is the friendly backdrop to, you know, kind of something else that's happening, I think. Yes, well, you know, I think the, the work starts here and yeah. I'm sure we can tell some <laughs> stories that will fit into that mode. Yeah. So just before we finish, I'd just like to get in another couple of comments about The Wicker Man and Midsommar, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. I mean, with The Wicker Man, I really want to say that if anybody has watched this film from a Christian point of view and, you know, just seen it once, enjoyed it and viewed it as a traditional good versus evil horror film with good, clearly characterised as Christianity. Well, firstly, it's fine to read it like that, especially given the ending of the movie, but I think it's worth a deeper analysis and it's worth going back to and it's pleasurable to go back to because actually the dialogue about faith within it is so nuanced the paganism versus christianity discussions within the film um are so gentle and thoughtful and thought-provoking i mean sergeant howie encounters so many characters on summer island patiently and gently explain their belief systems to him and obviously challenge his belief system at first in a very kind way. I mean, as as Lord Somerville says to him, do sit down, Sergeant. Shocks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. <laughs> and, you know, I think some of it can be shocking if you come from a very um, pure Christian background and you've been somewhat closeted uh, in your view of life and your faith. But I do think that it's a healthy and good thing to challenge one's faith and as someone who comes from that background myself, um, you know, what is in The Wicker Man is a really unusual opportunity to get to grips with 
another culture's view of Christianity. I mean, Sergeant Howie challenges the mistress of the school on the island and asks her if they teach Christian theology in the school, and she says they do, but, quote, only as a comparative religion, unquote. They're teaching Christianity as a comparative religion. That's such an extraordinary idea in a movie, in a fairly mainstream movie at that time. And it takes the kind of anthropological tropes that we've discussed elsewhere in this episode and turns them on their heads. Um, There are loads of points in the movie where, in funny, thoughtful, intelligent ways, Howie is invited to look at his religion in a different way. He doesn't really take up those invitations, but that doesn't mean that the audience can't listen to those invitations and maybe give them a little more thought. You know, there's a point in the movie where he criticises some of their festivals um, as being absurd, such as the, um, uh, the fertility rite where naked women jump through fire in the hope that the fire will confer pregnancy upon them. Um, And he says, this is ridiculous, you know, I mean, have you never heard of Jesus? And Christopher Lee says back to him, himself, the son of a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by ghost. And um, (laughs) Howie is very, very offended, but it's like, but, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. uh, (laughs) Sexy ghost times were happening. (laughs) The other thing I'd mention um, is that you know, Kirsty, you kind of made the observation that a lot of these pagan horror movies that you refer to have the kind of male protagonist, and I think that that's possibly partly a function of how these movies are kind of subsumed within um, tropes within the horror genre. Yeah. More generally, mm-hmm. and um, there is a, a a genre relationship between Midsummer and The Wicker Man, which occurred to me this time I watched it. It's almost as if somebody saw The Wicker Man and thought, that's great, but wouldn't it be better if it was a slasher movie? So instead of the kind of older protagonist, you've got like four young protagonists and they get killed off one by one, not just at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, I think most of them have to commit an act of transgression somehow in order to set up their Mm -hmm. deaths, which is a, a slasher movie convention. Yeah. as well um and i i can i can see the logic of you know, from a, 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 a genre crafting point of view um i can see that you, you that would be a way to increase the kind of suspense in a story or, or a sense of cumulative development but on the other hand midsummer is not that kind of movie as we've discussed no. it's not very suspenseful so it's another way in which the film is just strange um but but worth talking about yeah um, so I, I think that brings us to the end of our paganism discussion. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Um, yeah, nice one. Thank you. I feel so, I feel purged. <laughs> what? Well, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> our therapy yeah. sessions again. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we've been able to help. That was wonderful. Um, we're, we're all kind of moving forward in our journeys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so very quickly, we've only got a couple of minutes. Um, uh, have we got recommendations for this yes. week? I, I, yes. I'll hold my hands up and say I don't have any ready, and that's fine because we don't have much time. So, Kirsty, do you want to say yours? 
yes, I just wanted to, I mean, it's not a recommendation because I can make because I've seen it, but because uh, we've been harping on about it. Um, so Rob Savage's um, Zoom feature, the host um, uh, produced by um, Sam Raimi, um, hits Shudder um, on Thursday, 30th. Um, so uh, yeah, so by the time this episode goes out, it will already have been available for one day. Um, so if you're not a Shudder subscriber, you can do a seven day free trial, um, which I just discovered. Um, so mm. that's useful. Um, and I'm yeah, going to so be making gonna, use of that. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking that one out this weekend. Fantastic. I'll put the link on the site. And uh, how about you, Stella? Yeah, well, I want to keep us in uh, Scandinavia and I'm going to send you in the direction of a, another podcast um, called Death in Ice Ooh, Valley. Yes. And it's um, a BBC World Service production in collaboration with um, Norway's public radio service station called NRK. Um, and essentially, it's a, it's a true crime story. I'm hoping to sow some seeds of true crime here on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 29th of November 1970, on the remote Istellen Valley outside of the Norwegian town of Bergen, a woman's body was found by two young girls. She was badly burnt and surrounded by a set of peculiar objects, um, a bottle of water, a rubber boot and some burnt paper, and her identity and how she died has remained a mystery ever since. Now, this podcast takes um, investigative journalists to the area, to the mountainside, and it's all recorded sort of outdoors door so you can hear the howling wind on the side of the mountain it sounds as beautiful as norway looks if that makes sense um and it's a really really interesting um case i suppose because it's still not been solved so if you listen to it and you have some ideas then you can let them know what you think but it's kind of been described as um nordic noir but in podcast an investigative journalist sort of form so i do recommend it it's really really good and yeah via the bbc's um general podcast yeah, bbc um, sounds yeah portal yeah bbc yeah. sounds that's the fellow that's fantastic. But yeah it's really yeah. really really I'd good say I've, I've listened to all of that one as well and i second that recommendation mm. it's just stunning um oh, wow. it's really good yeah. it sounds yeah. amazing yeah. Right, that looks cool. going on there. Nice one, Stella. Uh, nice one, Kirsty. <laughs> Thank you very much, both. Well, that's another episode, another bumper episode, and another fascinating mm. one. So, um, yeah, I feel really good, guys. We're going to be back next week, but we haven't yep. quite decided what we're doing next week. So, uh, we'll let you know. Watch our Facebook page and our website. Um, we'll be able to give you a quick preview. Um, but otherwise, join us the same time. Or whenever, at the same time, <laughs> whenever you choose to listen. Not the radio, Dan. Um, we are in my mind. Yes. Um, I, I, I like to live with my delusions. Um, so, thank you very much, Kirsty. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you. It's and been an absolute you, pleasure. It's been yeah, an nice absolute one. pleasure for me, certainly. Um, and I hope for the listener, too. And we'll all come back together next time bye everyone bye Bye. you have been listening to and now the podcast starts produced and released by ambidextrous solutions limited presented by Kirsty Warrow, Stella Gaynor and T.D. Velasquez special thanks 
to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>